Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Gonna run that as the open. The searching loss of faith drama first reformed as the happy result of Paul Schrader's entering the what the hell, let's go for it stage of his long and bravely self-lacerating career. Terrific blurb from David Edelstein. Check out his full review, New York Magazine slash Vulture. A first reform, one of two films I'll be reviewing this week on Cinephile. It's Paul Schrader's latest film with stars Ethan Hawke, and I loved it, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. I also love Deadpool 2. I can't wait to talk about that. And how about the guests we got? David Leach, who's the director of Deadpool 2, got him for Cinephile, and Mr. Schrader, whose legendary Hollywood career we'll discuss at length. Thanks so much, as always, for supporting us here on Cinephile. Go to iTunes, and please do rank and review. I always rate my movies that have foreign police. Please give us a rating out of five stars and post a review as well. That's how we get business booming here, so we appreciate all the support. Next week, by the way, is going to be our two-year anniversary of Cinephile. Jay Baruchel is going to join us. Good 30 minutes with Jay. He's great. We talk about Million Dollar Baby, Tropic Thunder, Goon 1 and 2, How to Train Your Dragon, This is the End, and just how Canadian he really is. So look forward to that cinephile two-year anniversary. Also a t-shirt giveaway coming out next week. So make sure you look, check out for that here on Cinephile. Let's get right to it, though. First Reform, the latest film from Paul Schrader. And here's what it's all about. Ethan Hawke plays a priest who is in charge of a church which has now just basically become... A historical monument. There's not many parishioners there. But he clearly is a guy you can tell from the opening moments is suffering. Small church, upstate New York, and he's kind of just a caretaker for this church. And then he comes to talk to one of the people who does come to the church, Mary, a little on the nose here, like the character's name Mary. She comes to him and says, I need to talk to you because I'm a little bit worried about my husband. He's an environmental activist, and he's going through a lot of things right now. And Ethan Hawke says, okay, well, you know, whatever I can help him with. And he speaks to the husband, and the husband is concerned because he and his wife are about to have a baby. And he's saying the way the environment is right now, what we're doing to the earth, it's horrific. And I can't imagine bringing a child into this world. And Ethan Hawke, as pastors do, is listening politely. He's trying to listen. And he's just, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with myself. Like, I just, I, I cannot bring a child into this world. So Ethan Hawke then discloses, because you can get from the opening moments, clearly something is troubling him. He says, listen, I struggle every day with what happened to my son. I came from a military family, and I pushed my son to enlist in in the Iraqi war, and then he died. And, you know, as a father, I have to deal with that guilt. Um, that That's what I did to pushing my son towards that. And now you're bringing a child in this world, and we believe that God will take care of us, and that even though there are those issues you're talking about, environmental disasters, that if we pray for the best for the, your child and for all of our children, that everything will work out. But the guy doesn't seem that convinced. He, he kind of appreciates where Ethan Hawke is going, but, you know, that's about it. And then the story takes a drastic turn, and it's only something that Paul Schrader would do, because it's awfully gutsy what direction he goes in. And then it's that type of, of detour that I think really enlivens the proceedings. Because by the opening moments, Schrader shoots it with a very static camera. There's virtually no musical score. The opening credits, there's no music. And you feel like you're just getting a story which is very much an homage to Diary of a Country Priest. For cinephiles, they'll know that's a very famous film made by Robert Bresson. It's a huge influence on Paul Schrader's career. 
And Schrader, years ago, you know, he started his career, he was actually a film critic, and he wrote a book called Transcendental Cinema, and he focused on Brisson and Yasujiro Ozu. And as you'll hear in the interview with Schrader, Ozu, I only became aware of because of my love for Schrader, and then I read that book, and so I started watching Yasujiro Ozu's films. He's a Japanese master, Tokyo Story, his most famous movie. So what Schrader argues is in, in Bresson's movies and Ozu's movies that the focus is on the characters, the mise-en-scene, meaning the action within the scene, static shots, it's not too busy, and it really becomes this contemplative cinema. I mention that because for, I think, most moviegoers, you're going to watch this film and say, okay, when is it going to get rolling? There, there's scenes where Ethan Hawke is talking to Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried? I can't remember how to pronounce it. Let's go with Amanda Seyfried. Seyfried. You know, now you, you, I think you confused me. I don't think I've ever had a doubt about Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> Seyfried. Amanda Seyfried it is. She does play the uh, the woman who's Mary in the movie. So there's scenes where he's talking to Amanda Seyfried. And, you know, you get so conditioned to like, all right, establishing shot. Let's go over the shoulder, over the shoulder, close up. And like Schrader literally just leaves the camera there for like a four-minute conversation. So it's a little bit jarring at times. He clearly calls attention to the fact that, no, I'm just going to let the action play and we'll see how the story develops. But it's amazing to think that. And so I'll point out, it's not an easy watch for that reason. It's very deliberate, okay? People are going to say, this is too slow. I don't know where it's going. But if you're clearly a Schrader fan as I am, I think you're going to find the result very rewarding. And here's where it got fascinating. When I watched the trailer, one of the blurbs I saw said Schrader paying homage to Taxi Driver. And I said, okay, hang on a second. How is the story an updated version of Diary of a Country Priest and a guy who is dealing with his own spiritual guilt and suffering and this father-to-be about environmental issues? How is this like Taxi Driver? Like, where is the Iris character, the 12-year-old prostitute that he's going to save? But then I was like, oh, no, of course, because it's Schrader. He definitely deals with religious themes and salvation, et cetera. And I don't want to give anything away. Let me just tell you, there is definitely a Taxi Driver homage. And this movie takes a detour that I think is awfully brave. Um, and Hawk is terrific. As you'll hear in the interview with Paul Schrader, the reason why he cast him, but he's obviously an actor I love, had the pleasure of meeting him at Sundance. I think he's such a talent, uh, as a writer and as an actor, and he loves Paul Schrader. He's been uh, tweeting about him and posting pictures of him and saying that this has been one of the great joys of his career so far. You know, he's got that boyish look to him. He's just so, uh, seems like a genuinely nice guy and handsome, but in this movie, you just see him really grappling with these spiritual issues. So it's about faith and guilt and redemption and all those types of weighty issues, but ultimately, I think it is terrific, and the critics are raving about it. Currently on Tomato Meter, 98% for First Reformed. It's the best-reviewed movie of the year, so I encourage people to go check it out. I don't believe it's opening in a wide audience, but go check out First Reformed, Paul Schrader's latest film. Shout-out to Lemoyne College, where Paul Schrader did speak last year, and you'll hear the interview momentarily. Deadpool 2, which I assume most of you are going to go see this weekend, is also terrific. And here's why it's important to be in the right frame of mind, because I am a little bit squeamish about sequels. I've been well-documented with my superhero fatigue. So I'm watching the first little bit, and I said, okay, it just kind of seems repetitive, and it's kind of the same old, same old, but I was kind of tired. And thankfully, I had the link sent to me because we we're going to interview David Leach, the interview which we'll hear shortly. Then I watched it the next day, totally fresh to mind. I'm like, no, this movie's great. And it's exactly what Deadpool is all about. Now, the original was so good because it was fresh and it was fun and it was irreverent. Now, the sequel, by its very nature, is no longer fresh. Now you know what you're getting. So the fear becomes, is it going to become repetitive? But thankfully, because I think the script is so good, and Ryan Reynolds co-wrote the script, and David Leach did not direct the first one. He directed this one, and he's a great action director. Don't worry, there's a question about Atomic Blonde, which I did post to him. Stanzik will be all over that. So the action sequences are great. And as I said to David Leach, I just appreciate the style of the movie. Now, I love Gary Shandling. I love Gary Shandling's show. I love Larry Sanders' show. I love Arrested Development. I love shows that are self-referential. I like shows that are tongue-in-cheek. I like pop culture references. So Deadpool 2 
is going to be all of that. And for anybody wondering who is not aware of the Deadpool universe, is this okay for kids? Uh, there are references to one-eyed willies, glory holes, and a very extensive homage to basic instincts. So, no, do not take the kids. This is a hard R, as you'd expect from Ryan Reynolds. And please stay for the end credits, because you know what? These movies are always good, and this one does not disappoint. So I'd mentioned before how much I think the role fits um, Tony Stark with Robert Downey Jr., the same as the case of, of this character in Ryan Reynolds. It totally fits his charm and his style, and it's really funny, and it's got great action, and it's exactly what you'd expect of that Deadpool universe so if you like the first one, rush out to go see the second one. There's at least a handful of laugh-out-loud lines. And how about the fact this is the summer of Josh Brolin? The guy's everywhere. I mean, he's Thanos in the number one movie of all time, Avengers Infinity War, and he's the bad guy in Deadpool 2. And he's actually really important to this movie because he's actually more grounded, whereas Reynolds can have fun uh, and be the smart act. And also T.J. Miller, really funny in this movie as well. So I'm giving First Reformed three and a half Maple Leafs, a slight quibble with the way Schrader ended it. I would have gone in a slightly different direction, but honestly, it's great. And Deadpool 2, I'm also giving three and a half Maple Leafs. Terrific movie, really funny and very enjoyable. So you'll hear from David Leach, the Deadpool director, in just a second. But first, the great Paul Schrader. I first met Paul Schrader two years ago at the anniversary of Taxi Driver held in New York City. He was kind enough to take a picture with me outside. I told him what a fan I am, and here we are now discussing his latest film, which is terrific. I encourage all of you to go see it, and it's a pleasure to have him right now on Cinephile. Paul, thanks so much for the time, sir. Uh, thank you, Ed. So I, I saw the film first performed, and it's terrific. And I think in many ways it fits upon the themes of your work and themes that I'm personally passionate about, spirituality, guilt, redemption. And clearly you, you put a lot of thought into it. I mean, obviously the homages to Robert Bresson's Diary of a Country Priest with the voiceover and Ethan Hawke. I'm just curious, where did the inspiration come from? Because clearly you're using, like I said, a lot of themes that you've used throughout your work. Yes, it took me about two months to write and about 50 years to decide to write. <laughs> because I had written a book, Spiritual Cinema, before I became a screenwriter. But I never thought I would make a film of that ilk. I was just too intoxicated by action, and sex, and violence, and empathy. And uh, those are not items in the Transcendental Toolkit. And... Uh, and people would try to connect my films with that book. I say, no, 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 that's not me. You'll never catch me skating on that thin Bracelet ice. And then about three years ago, I was having a conversation with Paolo Pavlovsky, who had done Ida. And we were talking about spirituality in the cinema and about his film and about my book. And I, afterward, I walked uptown in New York. I said, you know, you're going to be 70 next year. It's time to write that movie you swore you would never write. And that's how it started. Well, I, I love the, the background to it because, like you said, it took so long to get around to it. But you mentioned the book, Transcendental Cinema. I remember it was because of you, Paul, that I got hooked on Ozu. And I watched Tokyo Story and I watched all those films. And I said, wow, Schrader's right. You know, that, that, that low camera and the static shots. And it's something that in today's cinema you don't see anymore. It's like people are so impatient and they've got to be cutting all the time. What I loved about First Reformed is you stick to your guns. We're going to have static shots which are beautifully framed and the, you know, the mise en scene and all the rest of it. And I appreciate the fact that visually, in many ways, it's an homage to Bresson Ozu along with the themes that you mentioned as well. Yes. I, uh, I have uh, updated that book, uh, brought it into the present. And it's coming out on the 22nd from University University of California Press. Well, that's great. Well, that's another book to look forward to then. Because, 
again, directorially speaking, I know what a great writer you are, and we'll discuss more of your scripts in, the, in a second here, but directorially speaking, I love the fact that shot, the Pepto and the Booze, a clear-cut homage to Taxi Driver and what Marty did with the Alka-Seltzer shot, which was in itself an homage to Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, tell me about that yes, shot specifically, yeah. Yes, well, you know, the, that shot has a curious origin because when I first wrote Taxi Driver, uh, I had an ulcer, and I had, but I also had the therapeutic urgency to write that script. And to write it, I needed to drink, I felt. And so I started cutting whiskey with mallots. Um, and it actually kind of worked, you know. It was not very tasty. <laughs> but it, it, it took the, the, the sting out of the alcohol in, in my stomach. And so then I took that element and put it in Taxi Driver, where he starts pouring brandy into cereal. And then then it shows up again in this film, where he's pouring, he's, he's dipping uh, bread into whiskey. And it also turns up in the Pepto-Bisbal shot. So it's a it's a it's a fifty year old reference. <laughs> it's still so great. Paul Schrader's new film is called First Reform. We're talking to him right now in Cinephile. Ethan Hawke is a wonderfully talented actor. I met him earlier this year at Sundance, and I, he holds you with such high reverence. He said of you, it's like being around to watch a lion roar. I know you guys had the premiere in New York last night. He also sent out a picture of you and said the incredible Paul Schrader. Tell me about working with Ethan Hawke and why you thought he was perfect for this role of a priest who's suffering through so much spiritual anguish. Well, Ethan, of course, is... Uh an artistic polymath. He's a writer, he's a director, a composer, he's a playwright, a singer, he's everybody. Uh, so you're, you're dealing with a very accomplished and intelligent person. And so you can you know, work with him at that level. Uh, why was he right for this? You know, these type of characters, suffering, reverend, whatever, they have a certain physiognomy. And uh, I thought Ethan was just at that point in his life now. The lines in his face, you know, the way he held himself, the way he walked. I said, you know, it's like Montgomery Clifton, I Confess, by Hitchcock. I said, you know, I, I think he's just right for this. And um, he, had not, he has not over the years played a lot of inward roles. But, you know, you know that uh, a good actor can go inside, too. And speaking of great casting choices by you, Cedric the Entertainer was terrific in this movie. How did you know that he'd be so good in this role, playing this very grounded priest who in some ways is paternal towards uh, the struggling reverend played by Ethan Hawke? I was casting a man who ran a megachurch. And our propensity as viewers to stereotype such men is enormous. You know, you, you give us half a chance, and it'll be Franklin Graham... Or Pat Robert or Austin, you know, we will slap that uh, stereotype jacket on him. And I how can I avoid this? How can I avoid this? I need to get an actor who gives you another buzz, a different kind of buzz. And, and so the idea of having a black actor from comedy, I thought, you know, I, I you know, I, I think I think that will protect me. And I've been around with Cedric the last few days, 
you know, and you, when you walk down the sidewalk or down the hall with Cedric, you can spot it in people's eyes as they recognize him. And, you know, he, and you, you can see the smile on their face. And so Cedric protected me from stereotyping this guy because I, I did not want him to be seen as a bad guy. Yeah, not at all. And I love just the themes of the story. Every act of preservation is an act of creation and what the priest goes through and the fact that in many ways he's like an updated version of what Travis is, God's lonely man. When I tell you, Paul, on Rotten Tomatoes, First Reformed has a 97% approval rating. What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, uh, obviously I've never experienced such a thing before. Uh, my, tends, my films tend to be somewhat controversial and they tend to split people. So I, I don't know what the future holds, but the irony is not lost on me. The fact that I set out to make a cold film, and and now I'm getting a hot reaction. <laughs> You're right. One of the reviews I read, they said it's quieter and more thoughtful than anything Schrader's ever done. I'm like, all right, you could. Yeah. It's almost like you went away against your instincts, and you still made uh, perhaps one of the best films of your career. We're talking with Paul Schrader. Taxi Driver is one of my favorite films, Paul. That and Raging Bull and Goodfellas. And, I mean, listen, there's so many great scripts along the way. And, of course, you're a wonderful filmmaker. But people always go back to that script. And to me, that's the best script ever written. And for our audience, indulge me. I know the stories. But please, for our audience, tell the stories of just how much you put of yourself into the character of Travis Bickle, who we became so iconic. Well, I mean, that script was written as self-therapy. I was not a screenwriter. Film critic, and I had fallen into a, a dark period and traveling in my car and uh, the guy in the car and drinking. And uh, I went to the hospital because I had this enormous pain in my stomach. I had a bleed also at the age of 26. And in the hospital, this metaphor occurred to me this uh, yellow metal coffin floating through the sewers of the city, this taxi cab with this young man trapped inside who seemed to be surrounded by people, but is completely alone. And uh, I knew I had to write about him because I was becoming him. And, uh, and that's why I wrote it. Um, and after that, I left Los Angeles for about six months, traveled around and visited old college friends and, gradually got my mental health back. And, and I love the fact that you put some autobi autobiographical touches a little bit, the fact that you encouraged De Niro, I believe, to wear the jacket he wears in there. And and, and De Niro and Scorsese are always very generous. Whenever they take praise for tax credit, they're the first to say, listen, it all starts with Shader's script. Without him, we couldn't do this. We, we felt those emotions of disenchantment, urban alienation, loneliness, you know, that male emasculation, but we couldn't verbalize it. Paul's the only one that could do it. Um, and, you know, without you putting into words for them, what was that like to be able to have people who had, I guess, like-minded interests that didn't realize? Well, you know, we're very fortunate. I mean, there's a degree of luck every time a film succeeds. And Godard once said, you know, no great film is successful for the right reason. So we got lucky. You know, the three of us, the right place, the right time, uh, the right movie. You know, we just hit the... Uh, center spot of the zeitgeist. And that is not something you can even plan. That's just luck. And uh, so, um, and, and Marty has said, and I think this is true, he said Taxi Driver is more mine and Raging Bull is more Bob's and Last Temptation of Christ is more his. So, uh, 
Yeah, it's it's quite the trinity of wonderful films to think about it. One other thought on Taxi Driver, Albert Brooks in the documentary is so funny. He said that at one point during the filming, I think it was after after the rap, you said to me, thanks so much for, uh, for doing that character. You know, I could write all of them. I couldn't really figure out yours. And Albert Brooks laughed and said, so, so you could do the pimp. You could do the young prostitute. You could do the crazy t- But you couldn't figure out the straight nine-to-five guy? Come on! <laughs> That's true. Uh, um, Raging Bull. I know Marduk Martin had the script, and then Marty and Bob included you in it. And I've read some stuff about what changes you made specifically, heightening the relationship of Pesci's character and De Niro, focusing on the brothers. What was it specifically that you were able to do to kind of well, shape there was no There was no Pesci character. Right. Uh, Jake hated his brother so much, he wrote his own autobiography and excluded his brother. So I started researching, and I started reading about Jake and Joey, you know, the fighting Lamada brothers. And all of a sudden I realized, this is not a boxing picture, this is a sibling story. I know how to do a sibling story. I, you know, I never cared much about a boxing picture. And I love the fact that, you're right, that sibling relationship is something that becomes universal because so many of us have brothers and we have older brothers and, you know, they see the punch me in the face and he's trying to prove his manhood and the fact he's upset about his hands, right? I can, I can never I can never be a heavyweight. I can never beat Joe Lewis. Everybody can relate to yeah, that well, kind of frustration. It, you know, um, Cain and Abel, it doesn't get more primal than that. Yeah. I remember reading the original script. Like, I, I found like the Paul Street, your version of it. And there was one scene, you know, the scene where De Niro obviously starts punching in the prison. He's so upset. And yours was even more visceral. It was like, you know, these hands. He's so upset about these hands. And, like, it's it be, it, the way well, that. Well, in, in, in my script, uh, he was trying to masturbate and he was failing. And he blamed his hands for it. And the thing about Jake is, were you able to kind of focus on that, how he equates sexuality with violence? Well, you know, Jake was so anxious to have this film made that he gave me a total license. Uh, I mean, I could have had him doing virtually anything, and he, he would have signed off on it just because he wanted the film to be made so much. They always told Will he was too short to play basketball, but Will never listened. Will let his work ethic do the talking for him, always in the gym, always running drills. Will knew where there was a will, there was a way, and he was Will. But then, after his second child was born, he realized the pros were all way better than him, so Will gave up and buried his high tops in a tearful ceremony. But one day, he heard that Geico could save him money on car insurance, so he switched and saved a bunch, which was awesome. So as you can tell, that was Paul Schrader riding a train to D.C. So considering the challenges that we had here, the fact he's 71 years of age, he had gone to the premiere of First Reformed in New York City Tuesday night. We were hoping to do the interview with him Tuesday. Unfortunately, they had to reschedule because he wasn't feeling well. So once he said, listen, I'm ready to go. I'm on a train. I said, let's just do it. But as you heard, the one part where he says, that's the train. And I did have more to talk to him about. We were hoping for 20 minutes. That's around 15 that you just heard. I still wanted to ask him about autofocus. I didn't get a chance to ask him about Affliction, two great films that he wrote and directed. I wouldn't mind asking him about Light Sleeper, Willem Dafoe in that movie, American Gigolo, Richard Gere. Obviously, there's a lot. I could use an hour with Paul Schrader. But thankfully, you got what you needed to get, which is First Reformed, stories about Taxi Driver, and stories about Raging Bull. So thanks so much to Paul Schrader for making it happen. As I mentioned, I, I met him a couple of years ago. It's so cool now that on Cinephile, I actually get to speak to him uh, at further length. David Leach, Deadpool 2 director. He's a fun listen, a fun guy. If you don't know his 
work stunt coordinator previously, Atomic Blonde, great action sequence. Here he is talking all about his latest film with Ryan Reynolds, which is going to be massive. Deadpool 2 set to roar into theaters this Friday, May 18th, and a thrill to talk to the director, David Leach of Deadpool 2, here on Cinephile. David, I saw the film, and i got to be honest with you, I always get worried when it comes to sequels, especially how much I enjoyed the original Deadpool. I say, how do you top the second one? Because it was so fresh, and it was so irreverent, and maybe it's not as fresh because we know the style of it, but it was still equally funny, and I thought you avoided all the pitfalls of sequels. So let me start with that. I know you didn't helm the original, but what was it like for you? You've got to make a sequel, smashing success. How do we make this to uh, satiate the public, yet do something different? <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. The expectation is massive. And um, to even enter into something that was such a global phenomenon um, was daunting. So I think I just had to, you know, take the approach of, like, what made Deadpool great, you know, the first time around for me. And that was obviously the irreverent comedy and and Ryan's sort of comedic um, skills and the character he brings to life. We have to embrace that wholeheartedly and go no holds barred uh, with him. We got to find an emotional story and a connection that, um, you know, we want to, you know, a story we want to go on a journey for, uh, and a, with a real beating heart. And then the last thing is like we have to have some of that fun, sort of heightened action um, that Deadpool fans love. And I think landing in the summer tentpole space was a big motivation to, you know, not just make the sequel bigger and better, but like make a movie that sort of fits you know, after Avengers and before Solo that fits in the summer, you know, spectrum. So um, we went out there to make the set pieces bigger. We introduced um, some some great new characters. Um, and, um, you know, again, we have uh, Ryan doing what he does best. I love anything that's self-referential, David. You know, I loved uh, Gary Shanling. I love the Gary Shanling show. I love Larry Sanders yeah. show. I love anything breaking the fourth wall. So my biggest laughs watching it is, <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it for people, but when Reynolds looks at the camera and says, that's just lazy writing, uh, when he mentions there's a big giant ball of foreshadowing coming, anytime there's that breaking the fourth wall, I just love that stuff so much. And I think the key is you've got to use it, but sparingly. You can't overdo it. How do you find as a director you knew where you could do that and be self-referential? and where it's not too much. Yeah, I mean, I think you're constantly sort of moderating the tone. And I think, you know, the script was a great template for it. I think, you know, the, the, the shooting draft of the script, we've gone through, uh, you know, a couple passes of it and, like, you know, found our rhythm. And you could definitely hear the voice and, you know, where we were going to break the fourth wall or where we were going to subvert, you know, maybe an over-sentimental moment with a, with a, with a joke. Um, but you really never know until you get into editorial and then you start to really fine-tune it and, you know, you're throttling up, throttling down and, um, you know, sort of refine, refine, refine. The thing about comedy that's interesting, too, is that um, it's empirical at some level and you can test a joke like a stand-up comedian tests a joke and you bring some people into the editorial and you're like, press play and there's a big laugh, you're like, that joke's in. so you, but again, it's like it's it's sort of a constant moderation till you find the right mix. I also love all the pop culture references. There's an amazing homage to Basic Instinct. There's a Felicity yeah. throwaway line by T.J. Miller. Uh, but I wonder, like I'm 39 and I'm a real pop console junkie my whole life, so I'm going to get all that stuff. Do you ever say to yourself, "Well, I don't know how many are going to get the Felicity line," or do you say, "You know what? I don't know what the percentage is, but those that get it are going to enjoy it and they're going to laugh." 
Yeah, I think that there's enough in Deadpool um, that it can reach a lot of different audiences and on a lot of different levels. And so, yes, I mean, Ryan, uh, he's a little bit younger than me, but, you know, we're both sort of from the same sensibility, and there's a lot of jokes in there that work towards our demographic <laughs> that you're like, you know, we have to, like, we have to find some other sort of uh, material that works for other people. So, um, but it's okay. A comedy can have a, an elevated joke and a fart joke in the same scene <laughs> and work for two audiences. And that's, it's funny, but it's true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you mentioned Ryan, obviously. I, I was thinking about this with Robert Downey Jr. I can't think of many uh, characters that are so good with his persona and I think his inherent kind of style as Iron Man for Robert Downey Jr. And yet, when I think about it, and Deadpool seems like the role Ryan Reynolds was played for because it really trades off the fact he's so handsome and then you got this character who's so hideous and he's just natural, smart aleck charm and he's witty and he's clever and he's smart. Uh, and self-deprecating, which I think is something that goes underrated with him. He also was a co-writer on it. How did that uh, shape things for you, at least as a director? Um, you know, it gave us a... But Ryan's an incredible writer, and um, he was an incredible collaborator. So it gave us um, all a little bit of a security that, you know, in any given moment we could, um, you know, have another line that's coming straight from the sort of font of Deadpool. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's a great sort of, uh, he understands the brand and he understands, like, sort of this sort of, like, the crazy world of Deadpool, not only just as a character, but, like, you know, the surreal nature of it all. And uh, it's, it was great having him as a producer in that respect. And also some excellent yeah, excellent new characters as well. You mentioned, listen, I want to talk about Josh Brolin because this guy's been terrific for so many years, and I think the average person definitely knows what a talent he is. But now, between Infinity War, which you mentioned, and Deadpool 2, this is the summer of Josh Brolin, and he is so jacked in this movie. Right? I was unbelievable. I, and I, I listened, and I said this, David, I said, I, you know, in Avengers Infinity War, I feel like I'm just oversaturated with sequels, but I thought he was so good in that movie. I mean, you've got 25 superheroes, and yet Thanos is this terrific villain, and in your film, Again, Reynolds is so cheeky, and everything's tongue-in-cheek, and, and Brolin is just like, he's just a square John hero, and it, I thought he was terrific in the movie. Yeah, he grounds, he grounds the movie, and he becomes sort of the adult in the movie, and um, the minute he comes on screen, there's some pathos and, uh, you know, gravitas that is needed, um, and look, it's, it's a, it was, you know, Ron, uh, Josh can tell you himself, like, they're two very different experiences, but it takes a real um, special actor to be able to, you know, create those two characters and make them come to life and, and find the humanity in what could easily be caricatures and not real characters. No question. I think you're right. When you're making an action comedy, which I really think this is, somebody said to me, it's super heroic. I don't know. I think it's an action comedy. It could go in that genre. And sure, of course, it's from the superhero vein. But I think you're right. You have to have the jokes, but you have to have someone who, as you said perfectly, grounds it. Like, he's he's a really good actor who's playing the role straight. And if you don't have someone doing that, then the story becomes a little too farcical. It's true. It's true. You know, you need... Um you need a straight man. And that respect is like, um, but they're equally as important and their timing is equally as important. And, you know, one look from uh, Josh, you know, one reaction shot to Deadpool's antics is, uh, is worth a thousand uh, words, you know. It's like there's some great moments that are just looks. Yeah. 
talking to David Lynch. He's the director of Deadpool 2, which is coming up Friday, May 18th. I encourage you all to go check it out. Musical choices. ACDC, Thunderstruck, Share, Turn Back Time, Yento, with the obvious uh, tongue-in-cheek reference to the fact that Brolin's uh, mother-in-law or mother is uh, Barbara Streisand. So tell me about how you come up with those musical choices. Well, there was, so there was, um, Ryan had created a song list that he had um, had when he was writing the script with Rhett and Paul, and um, he, he we shared an iTunes list, and we started to put songs on it, and um, a lot, a couple of the songs would make it into the script, and then we would take those ones out and put more into the script. But it was definitely a process from the beginning. It wasn't something that we thought about or you know made all our choices in post. We really sort of had a point of view, and a lot of the songs from uh, the beginning sort of stuck. Um, there are a few at the end that you know came out of inspiration. So, "Turn Back Time" it was one that sort of came out of inspiration, you know, later in the process. And um, but uh, you know, or the Celine Dion um, song "Ashes," yes. which was a uh, you know pivotal to um, something that I wanted in the film. I, we really were looking for a thematic song that we could control and deconstruct for um, score elements as well and sort of like work as a, a James Bond-esque theme and um, to get Celine to record it was, um, was definitely a, a big get for the Deadpool universe <laughs> yeah I mentioned a lot about the comedy but of course you've made your chops and certainly earned them with the action sequences and there's a couple of beauties in here and again <laughs> Ryan says alright get ready for some big old CGI and then away we go um, how challenging was it, the action sequences, to make it, you know, in the sequel universe, bigger, faster, stronger? I think, it's you know, it's always a challenge. I mean, you know, the people, they see these films, and um, there's so many of them, and there's so much noise, and, like, how do you make it fresh, and how do you make it stand out? I guess, um, again, like, I just approach action... Um, like I always have in my years as a as a stunt coordinator and a choreographer is like character 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 um, that fight C CGI CGI fight at the end between those two characters is um, it's um, it's really it's a story moment and it's about a guy who's learned a lesson and now we're going to see him demonstrate lesson learned and um, you know if you can if you can ground your your action and story it's much more compelling for the audience. That's well said. Atomic Blonde, I wasn't going to see it, and then I saw every movie poster kept saying stairwell scene, stairwell scene, and I said, well, no matter what, I've got to watch this movie for the stairwell scene, and it more than lived up to the hype. It's one of the best action sequences I've seen of any recent film. Tell me everything about that scene. Choreography, storyboard, how challenging was it? I want to know it all. Okay. Well, we, um, you know, I, that movie sort of struggled from uh, resources, and like it was a small independent film at the beginning, and it wasn't uh, Universal wasn't going to release it. It was just sort of an independent project that was self was financed um, through foreign sales. So we had like a very small budget. Um, when you do that, you get really inventive. Um, looking at this sort of um, end of the second act, I really wanted Lorraine's character to sort of um, be at the lowest point in the movie, and. Um, my producer, uh, Kelly McCormick, who is actually my wife, who actually hired me for that movie, <laughs> um, she said, why don't you, you know, there's this one idea you have of like a one-er shot. Why don't you sort of, you know, hang this on her performance? I mean, she's an Academy Award winner. Come on. And um, sort of set the light ball off in my head. I got with the choreography team. It's like, we're never going to leave this character for seven minutes. We're not going to cut. 
this is the challenge, guys. And so we got into the lab and we started to choreograph, um, figured out the technical process, and then it's all hands on deck. It's the grip department, the art department, the camera department. Like, everybody has to be in sync with this new vision. Um, that was a seven-day shoot, all in, um, to create that seven minutes. And um, Charlize had to go through extensive training, and, you know, it's just... Um, Logistically, it was uh, a, a feat that I'm incredibly proud of. You should be, because no matter what, in the annals of great action sequences, people will always know sterile sequence, atomic blonde, and I hope that you'll have much more success with it. And Deadpool 2, listen, as you said off the top, it was a resounding success, the original. Do, do you pay attention to box hours, or are you just going to just put your hands over your ears and just ignore the entire world? How does how does opening weekend go? Because I know it must be so stressful, and you've made a great film, and I think it's going to do great. But how do you how do you deal with it? I, I try. I mean, God, you know, you know, you're on pins and needles, and you're anxious, and you're sort of releasing this art into the world, and uh, you know, it's all it's all subjective at some point. Um, but I want to say I'm really proud of it, and I I try to be zen about the numbers. Um, I hope people enjoy it, and, and then they come out and see it. And um, look, it would—it'd be great if people embrace it, and uh, we could have a hit. That would be amazing, and it'd feel great for uh, Ryan and um, everybody involved. It more than lives up to the hype. I encourage everyone to go see Deadpool 2 in theaters this Friday. And make sure you stay for the end credits. As a fellow Canadian, I'm from Toronto. I know Ryan's from Vancouver. <laughs> Listen, I love the Canadian jokes. Keep them coming. David Leach, director of Deadpool 2. Thanks so much, David. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. My greatest gratitude to Paul Schrader and David Leach. Check out Deadpool 2 and First Reformed this weekend in theaters and next week the two-year anniversary of cinephile your chance to win free cinephile t-shirts via quiz that dan stanzik is going to dial up and also we'll be talking to jay baruchel very funny very entertaining all that more coming up in cinephile next week until then i'll see you at the movies don't miss out on the next episode of cinephile subscribe to the adnan Verk movie podcast by clicking the listen tab in the espn app 